as I was campaigning and, and talking with people for support, they would ask me, you know, baby, are you old enough to run for mayor? And I would tell them, yes, I am. And I would share about uh, my experience and expertise. And they later learned I was probably the most qualified mayor we've ever had. Sometimes people judge you based on where they were at your age. And everyone's path is really different. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, Mayor Asia Brown joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the mayor of the city of Compton in California. She made history back in 2013 when she became the youngest mayor ever elected in the city at the age of 31. Now, Mayor Brown is almost done with her second term leading the city and is credited for lowering the city's unemployment rate, reducing crime, and creating economic development in the area. Mayor Brown, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Skin from the Couch. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're, we're thrilled to have you. So we're going to jump in with our first question, which is obviously you're in politics, you've become a public figure, but what is something that we don't know about you because we can't Google it? I'm known to be really funny amongst my loved ones, and my husband calls me the funniest person that he knows. Wait, this is like some high expectations now for this interview. Are you funny, like stand-up comedian funny? I'm known to have just really sharp one-liners. I like it. And also, did I read that you guys are high school sweethearts? We are. We actually connected my senior year in high school. So he like actually thinks you're funny then because he's been with you for a long time. So we are going to go way back. We'd like to start in the beginning. So talk to us about how you grew up. Are people surprised that grew up with you that you went into politics? I'll work backwards. I think people that I grew up with or that have known me the majority of my life, they knew I would do something in a leadership role. I never had an affinity for politics. So I think that I came into the political realm was surprising for some people, but I had worked in city government for about a decade. And so it was kind of a natural projection to some perspectives. But as I was younger and growing up, I was raised by a single mom. I have a twin brother, had a lot of love in my home. Uh, My mom, she worked really hard to take care of us. We struggled a lot financially, but growing up, I really didn't know I was poor um, because my mom didn't make a big deal out of it. And so as I got to high school and I started learning about poverty figures and I'm like, mom, you actually do not earn a lot of money. I don't know how we were able to survive, but my mom was just such a strong leader and really imparted the power of vision for my brother and I. And we bought in and we just worked as a team my whole life. So I had a really beautiful upbringing. But as a child, I was very quiet and my mom would always tell me that you can one day you'll be running a company, but you can't run my house. You're like, I'll one up you. I'm going to be the mayor. She would just always tell me that it's so funny, but I would be the person behind the scenes kind of calculating instructions and strategies with my twin brother. So that's pretty much how I was as a kid. I was really quiet. I observed a lot. But to those people that were close to me, I had a funny personality. I want to talk a little bit about your experiences growing up in Compton and how those experiences helped to, to eventually shape the policies and positions that you ran on. So as a young child, actually, my uh, grandmother moved to Compton, raised my mother in Compton. And 
as my mother became an adult, her mother actually was killed in Compton. And so my mother decided to raise my brother and I in Pasadena, which is about 25 miles north of Compton. And about um, 12 years ago, my husband and I moved back to the city, um, bought our first home, and really started doing a lot of work in the community. And I had a positive perspective of Compton because my mother has such a beautiful childhood, very similar to mine. She would go fishing in the Compton Creek. She had chickens. And Compton was just really a, a close-knit family community, and people just strived together. And it was really a beacon for just upward mobility for Black people. And so she always conveyed the pride in which she grew up in Compton. And so many uh, wonderful people came out of the city. They raised their kids to do great things. And so there was just a, a standard of family and community that she imparted to me. And so my perspective of Compton, I think, was much different than some people that were raised in the 80s and 90s and really had to weather the drug epidemic and the height of gangs. And so I really came in with a, a really strong perspective of love, also a really strong affinity of our history and just really our, our cultural ability to achieve. So the time that I've spent in Compton has really been just a, a, a beautiful experience. I've seen heartache, I've seen struggles, I've seen people achieve and defy odds. So Compton is really rich in history for me. And now I'm raising my daughter here and I plan to continue to do that in the years to come. You were the youngest mayor ever elected in the city. Politics is already hard. Do you think it was harder because you were the youngest? Do you think it was helpful? Did that factor in at all to your decision to run, either as a positive or a negative? I definitely consider my age as a factor. As I was campaigning and, and talking with people for support, they would ask me, you know, baby, are you old enough to run for mayor? And I would tell them, yes, I am. And I would share about uh, my experience and expertise. And they later learned I was probably the most qualified mayor we've ever had. And so they really got behind me after just speaking with me for some time and understanding that I was um, qualified to do so. But it's been a challenge um, because I think that there are some people um, that are older, that just have a big just divide and also uh, a lack of perspective. And sometimes people judge you based on where they were at your age. I mean, everyone's path is really different. And I wouldn't say I'm, I was an average 30-year-old. I don't know a lot of 30-year-olds that were deciding to run for mayor, but I've always made unusual decisions and sacrifices in my life. So I, I was mature and prepared to do so. But I think the hardest obstacle was really being a female. Women in leadership have such a hard journey, and it's not just for men. You are also objectified by women. And so that, I think, was the, the hardest obstacle that I've encountered, which is leading as a woman. I can't imagine what stupid comments were probably said to you as you weighed whether or not to do this. So what made you do it at this moment? I had really made a commitment to just serve in my community and I made sacrifices in my career to earn less money in order to really be in places that I could have a greater impact. And so I came from the perspective that my community deserved to have professional leadership and leadership with integrity. And that actually had a real pragmatic strategy to lift us out of the condition that we were in. And so that really motivated me to move forward. I'm also a, a person of faith. And after a lot of prayer and a lot of confirmation, it was clear that this was a part of my life's journey. And when I look back at my life, I just re recognized that I was uniquely prepared for, for that time. And so it was easier for me to step forward, really having a strong conviction and then also understanding that I was really prepared. What was the most annoying thing that was said to you? 
I've heard a lot of things over the years, but some of the, the biggest kind of things that have stuck with me are just really sexist comments from people that have said, well, how come your husband didn't run? Or, you know, why would a woman want to be a mayor? I've heard a lot of crazy things, but I, I think that women are, are so uniquely prepared to be pragmatic, to solve problems, to really be coalition builders and to be effective in our leadership. So I'm the kind of person that I, I'm not really an arguer. I like to let results speak for me. I want to talk about the experiences that you brought into the job that you talked about, which is you had a professionalized leadership and urban planning background. And when you came in, you had big issues in the community to tackle, including gang violence and crime. I think those are issues that might scare off other people, especially people coming in to their first term in politics. How did you prioritize? Like, where do you start first? I recognize that um, bigger than any of the statistical issues that Compton also suffered from a perception and a reputation challenge. And so I knew in order to really shift that perspective and our trajectory that I had to deal with the, the tough issues first, such as crime. And I also knew that economic opportunities were very closely and tangibly linked to safety to the investment community's ability to safely invest and feel that they are investing in a place that is uh, moving in a positive direction. So I understood that, number one, having a, a strong vision that was clear where stakeholders could understand how and where they fit into the overall big picture. And then also focusing on the tough issues such as crime, we immediately uh, put together a task force and, and really brought together every level of law enforcement, all community members, gang members, young people, I mean, really started tackling the tough issues. But I, I'm really a strong believer that people are experts in their own condition. And so even before I put together a strategy for my community, I started with just stakeholder listening sessions to understand what was most important to them. And so I knew that if people cared about certain issues, that they would be willing to put the work in with me to change them. And so we really started with the tough issues first, then focused on economic development. And all of these things just had synergy and it just worked well together. And ultimately, as crime went down, as investment opportunities increased, and as that later created jobs, and that also just changed the perception of Compton and ultimately, not only externally, but internally. And so it just created this momentum that has really helped transform a large aspect of our community. I think we're all, you know, familiar with the, the stigma around Compton, especially from the 80s and 90s. When people think about Compton now, what do you want them to think? When people think of Compton, they think about a city of hope, a city that has had a challenged history, but that's also been resilient and also has continued to produce great people that have gone on to do great things. I hope they uh, believe that Compton is fertile ground and that um, we will continue to grow in a positive direction. And a big part of that, I want to talk about the Compton Pledge, which is an initiative you kicked off last year that's gotten national attention. Can you explain what that is for people that might not be familiar? Yes, the, the Compton Pledge is our guaranteed income pilot, and it's a commitment to provide 800 Compton residents with a monthly or quarterly income stipend that is not dependent on anything else other than really their commitment to the program. And so their participants, they receive um, up to $600 per month, depending on how many people reside in their household. 
And we created actually the Fund for Guaranteed Income. And so every participant has access to free checking accounts. They have access to financial wellness counseling. They have mental health resources. And so it's really an empowerment portal that we created for people to be able to access. And our particular pilot really was intently focused on measuring the impact that poverty has on trauma and stress and well-being, and also ensuring that those that were undocumented and formerly incarcerated had access to this direct benefit. In reading about and preparing for this interview, was really reading a lot more about what you've done to curb gang violence. And I'd love to, to hear a little bit about your approach there and specifically what, what you kind of famously did a few years ago on, on one Sunday. We really looked at two particular aspects, gang intervention and prevention. So we started out with youth programs. Um, we launched programs for young people. And then we moved into the intervention space. And so we have been working with uh, a few people that were former gang members and that had really close ties to those people that were actively engaged. And I requested for them to join me for just a, a community, a family meeting. And we had representatives from every neighborhood, local gang in the city, come into our community center on a Sunday. And there were about 100 people there. We all pulled up a chair. I asked everyone to sit in a circle, just letting them know, number one, that I respect them, that we're all linked, and that we're all on equal ground. And we had conversations about what we hope for, what we want for our children. And I saw grown men break down because they hadn't seen friends that they went to school with just because they live in different neighborhoods or they're in different gangs. I heard men talk about their hopes for their children, that they didn't want them to be involved in gangs and that they wanted them to have better opportunities than they had, but that they were caught in this cycle. And so I shared with them that if they committed to working with me to bring more peace, less violence, that I would focus on bringing new economic development opportunities, which created jobs. And so we later formed a group called Compton Empowered, and they committed to meeting uh, weekly and just working through conflicts. And it was really hard, but everyone stayed committed. Many of the young men that were in the program, they started out in life skills training, which is a requirement. Then we graduated from life skills. We went to leadership development, and then those people had access to customized job opportunities just for them. And so they went on to be successful. Some bought homes and started programs. And today we're actually focusing on a peace summit, which is scheduled for the month of April, where we'll be focusing on the phase two of really building peace in Compton. I want to just talk about the fearlessness that is needed to sit down with rival gang members, to sit down and tackle crime. Were you putting on a strong face and like nervous inside? Where were you mentally as you sort of approach conversations like that? I wasn't afraid of other human beings. I recognized that people had different conditions. They've made different choices. They've had different obstacles that ultimately create a sum total of an individual. But I knew that if I would come to them with just a genuine heart and that they, they would be able to sense that and that we would be able to work together. And so I, I came with the hope that humanity and love would just cover any barrier that we had. You've made the decision not to run for a third term. How did you think about making that decision? Especially knowing that a lot of people listening probably have the question on, you know, when is it time to do something new? How do you know it's time for the next adventure? For me, I was very clear that I would serve two terms. I just felt that in my soul. I knew that I would be there for eight years. And so when I was coming into 
beginning the eighth year, it was definitely a, a bittersweet decision that I ultimately had to make. It would be easier for me to stay in this role and kind of just reap the, the benefits of the hard work and see projects come online and different things that just take time. But I have to keep growing and going and, and be in a space where I'm challenged and that I know that I could make an impact. And so I, I knew that it was time for me to just make room for this next generation to continue to take Compton to a new level. What is next for you? <laughs> I'm taking some time to just decompress. I know that I will be really hopefully making people's lives better, but honestly, just taking some time to figure out what my next chapter looks like. And I need that time. And I encourage everyone to take that time. Sometimes we just hop into the next thing, but I plan to take a little time and really reflect on where I want to make the greatest impact. What are you like as a manager? I love to empower people to make decisions. I love to be clear on what the vision is, the objectives. I like to ensure that my team has all the tools they need to be successful. Then I like to take a step back and let people get to their point A to Z. Everyone does things differently and I, I respect that we're all human and my way may not be the way that someone else does it, but I'm ultimately always focused on the results. And if midway point, if we have to make an adjustment or pivot, we do that and I'm always there to help. But I like to give people room to grow. I just remember being young and just full of just so many ideas and ingenuity and just wanting to do things. And sometimes you're under a lid of your leadership. And so I, I always was been very intently not to stifle anyone's creativity or the way that they want to solve problems. So I can be very hands off, but I like to be there to support and just check in to make sure that um, we're on track. What are you not good at as a leader? Like, what is your Achilles heel? Depending on the personality of the individual, sometimes I'm too hands-off. And so I think that some people are used to having someone micromanage them. And so that could be, usually it's just a, an adjustment period to kind of fine-tune what works for some people. After being in this role for two terms, do you feel more hopeful about politics or less hopeful? Politics changes so much so fast, but currently I'm very hopeful that as a nation, we are going in a more positive direction. I'm hopeful about just really elevating educators and making sure that people can have the resources that they need. I'm hopeful that we have more investment coming into communities and more employment opportunities and really preparing our nation for its future. So I, I'm hopeful that we're going in a more positive direction. How do you actually take care of yourself in a role where it's 24-7, but it's also a highly critical role just in the nature of being in the political spotlight? Boundaries are just really important. I've learned to utilize do not disturb on my phone and to really be strict with those boundaries. I've learned to not let email run my life. There are certain increments throughout the day, intervals that I, I check in for my email, but I really focus on achieving the things that I want to get done in that day. And I've learned to take time for myself. I've learned to spend time with family to recharge. I've learned to just take time and you have to just take it because it'll never be there. And that was something that I didn't really fully understand the first, I would say at least the first term, but maybe even halfway into the second. But I think COVID has really helped fine tune many people in terms of what's really important and to really help our perspective. What current political or recent political leader style do you emulate? Honestly, I don't emulate anyone. I'm really an individualist. I think that everyone is so uniquely prepared to just 
enact change in their own way and in their own space. I admire certain leaders, like we have a new supervisor, or she's a former California Senator, Holly Mitchell. She's always been focused on issues that impact women and children. She's now in a very uh, pivotal role in our region. And so I have a lot of respect for just her pragmatism and staying focused on things that matter. But in terms of emulating um, anyone, uh, that's not really who I am as an individual, but I have a lot of respect for people. We talk so much about mentorship on this show, as I said, and support systems. And who do you make the 911 call to when you're like, I have no idea how to solve this? It's both, I imagine so different, but also probably a little bit similar in certain respects when you're running a city or a town. Who have your 911 calls been to? And you're like, I need help figuring this out. I wish that I had a 911 person to call. I've gone through a lot in this role, but it's so unique and very few people understand what you're actually dealing with and what it takes to really be in the role. So I have people that are personally uh, in my corner that I have, you know, called to just to Pray, give me advice, but in terms of like city responses, I don't have like a, a political mentor that I can call. Unfortunately, I wish that I did, but I don't. You and your husband have been together since high school, which is very cute. How would he say that you have changed and how have you been the exact same? I think he would say I'm the same in terms of my heart and really my humility and just who I am as a person. I think he would say that I've changed in just my boldness. He calls me a lioness these days in just the way that I approach situations and challenges and obstacles. So I think I've grown a lot just in in that way. But I think the core of me, of who I am as a person, is still the same. Well, with that note, let's go into our final round, our lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. Are you working from home or are you guys back in, in person? I'm kind of a half and half, depending on the day. Like, I'm in the office now. Got it. What is your vice? Probably just being on my phone. I'm on my phone a lot for work and trying to stay connected to what's happening in the world. So I I have to make myself put my phone down, like most people. (laughs) What was your first job? I worked as actually a tutor um, for a science academy when I was in high school. What is the last TV show that you binge watched? I actually just watched uh, Genius, the Aretha Franklin story. I want to watch that one. What is the worst job you've had? Oh, I've had some learning experiences. I haven't had jobs that I just don't like, but I would say kind of one of my least favorites was I worked at USC in a particular division. I won't say which one, but it was just pretty just mundane. So it was just something where... I was happy to be there. I had really nice people that I worked under, but I didn't really learn very much. So I just did a lot of homework, which was good for me. What is a current news story that you're following closely? I'm currently focusing on the Biden administration and really their next policy packages. I'm really interested in the infrastructure package that was just released yesterday. Are you somebody who gets up before the alarm or are you a snoozer? I'm a before the alarm person. Mm, Okay, I don't understand that. My daughter's the same way, unfortunately. She's up at six o'clock no matter what. Well, Mayor Brown, congratulations on everything that you have done, and we're excited to see what you do next. I'm sure it will be big. Thank you, Carly, and thank you, Danielle, and your whole team for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. 
And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra.